Bible, turn to Luke chapter 12, excuse me, Luke chapter 15. I don't know where 12 came from. Luke 15, we are continuing a series we began last week called Amazing Grace, where we are looking at parables that Jesus told here in Luke 15 that put on display the grace of God. And we looked last week at the parable of the lost sheep. Now we're going to look at the parable of the lost coin in verses 8 through 10. As you're turning there, let me just say that if you are one of our guests, we are glad you're here. We hope you will stick around up services. Uh, let us get to know you and you get to know us just a bit better. Luke 15, let's read verses 8, 9, and 10. Hear now the word of the true and living God. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you. There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let us pray. Father, help us through the words of your Son. And by the help that the Spirit within us gives us by enlightening our hearts and our minds, may we see you, your character, who you are, what you're like. We pray this. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Find a penny, pick it up, all day long, you'll have good luck, right? Yeah. As long as it's face up, right? If it's face down, you've got to just pass that by, yeah? Um, we like finding money, don't we? Have you ever found a substantial amount of money? And, and, then, and then you get to keep it? Right? I mean, you do try to do the right thing, try to find out who it belongs to, but when you can't, wow, right? that's, that's a fun thing, finding money. Mm. You ever lost money? Mm. Ever lost a substantial amount of money? Like a paycheck, maybe? I mean, now we have direct deposit. We don't have to worry about that anymore, right? But back in the day when you used to get the paper checks, you ever lose a paycheck? Yeah, that's, that's no fun. Losing money. You don't like losing money. And you know what? Jesus combines a couple of things. One, we don't like losing things, period, right? But then combine losing things with money. That's what Jesus does here in this parable. And he knows this really well, doesn't he? That we, we hate losing money, whether it's by a scam or by an accident. No one likes this. And I think just about everybody can relate to this parable about a woman who loses some money and engages in this frantic search to try and find loose change. But it's a healthy chunk of change, really. And what Jesus is communicating here about God's grace is that God's grace is demonstrated when he reclaims lost coins. Yes? What does it mean for God to reclaim lost coins? Jesus, here in this parable, he's revealing God's grace to us. And remember the, the context. Remember the situation that Jesus is facing here. And 
Back in verse 1, we saw and we talked at some length last week about how the tax collectors and the sinners, those who were emarginated, there's your word for the day, right? Those who'd been pushed to the edges of society, those who had been ostracized by their community and by society, the tax collectors and the sinners were the ones who were drawing near. And, and the way this is written, they continued, they were continually drawing near to Jesus to hear him. And of course, that's connected to the last verse of chapter 14. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then the tax collectors and the sinners are drawing near to hear. We have ears to hear. He draw near to hear the voice of the one who spoke and calmed the storm and the sea. They draw near to hear the voice of the one who spoke and demons were driven out of people. They drew near to hear the voice of the one who spoke and diseases were cured. They drew near to hear the voice of one who spoke and dead people came back to life. They came to hear the voice of Jesus because in his voice, in his words, are life and freedom and peace. And so they drew near. And, and it's those who are in bondage, troubled by their past, troubled by their situation. It is these who are the ones who recognize their need for spiritual healing, their need for spiritual life. They recognize they're dead in their transgressions. And so they come to the one who can give them what they need, the great physician, Jesus. And so you have tax collectors and sinners, and, and they're drawing near. Meanwhile, you have those who are disapproving of this whole situation. Verse 2, it is the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees who were so diligent at keeping God's law. And the scribes who were so diligent in copying God's law. But the Pharisees, because of their rigid law keeping, were looking, they looked down on other people. And you're not as righteous as we are. The scribes who were copiers of the law, so diligent in that, they knew God's word and they came with their own baggage as well. That was associated with the Pharisees. It's kind of why they're hanging out. They were the religious elites of, elites of their day, and, and they grumbled. This man receives sinners and eats with, him, with them, and we spent some time talking about how that's great news for us and how Jesus latches onto that and uses it as a teachable moment in order to communicate, that's right, this is how gracious God is, even the Father. It's a short Simple parable that Jesus tells here. Shorter than some, longer than others. Just three verses in our English text, and it begins with something that's lost. And it begins also with the rhetorical question, What woman of you, having ten silver coins, loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? It's a rhetorical question. It anticipates, of course, any woman would do this, especially one of these silver coins. In the original language, it's a drachma. And that was equivalent to a day's wage. It's a healthy chunk of coin here, right? 
She's lost a day's wage. This isn't, again, this isn't necessarily just loose change lost in the sofa. This is a lot of money. And so this woman, yeah, she engages in a diligent, it's a frantic search. You picture her eyes wide, sweat on the brow. She's, she's furiously turning the house upside down to try and find this one silver coin, this lost day's wage. Lights a lamp. She's, she's searching every nook, every cranny in the house to, to engage in this diligent search. This lost coin very well could mean her livelihood. The difference between life and death in their day. And then when she has found it, verse 9, was lost and now found. The joy of finding this coin, it, it spills over. She calls together her neighbors and her friends. Rejoice with me. I have found the coin that I had lost. This joy, it's contagious. Great big Kool-Aid grin, right? Smiling like a Cheshire cat. And everyone else comes to join the party. Just so. Here's the point. Here's Jesus' point. You see, we can, we can latch on to this parable and turn it into an allegory where every little bit has a, a certain connection, right? It has a certain meaning. Every, I mean, even the... Even uh, right down to the sweeping. Well, what does that mean, right? Jesus' point is in verse 10. He doesn't leave us to try and figure this out like it's some kind of theological Rubik's Cube. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The point of the parable is about God's joy over finding lost sinners. And so, just like he pursues the lost sheep, and he rejoices when he finds his sheep, so also he searches for lost coins. And, and when he finds the lost coin, he rejoices over that as well. As I said last week, God goes looking when we go missing, and we also see that God rejoices when we are found. So again, what is Jesus doing? He's, he's working to clear up people's perception of God. The Pharisees and the scribes, they've muddied the waters, produced an unclear image of, of who God really is. And so Jesus is clearing that up. This is what God is like, and, and that's what he's telling this parable about. He's, he's a God who does. He engages in a frantic search. We talked last week how Scripture affirms there are none who seek after God. There's no one who does good, no one who is righteous, no, not one, no one who seeks after God. And thank God we have a God who, who searches for us. Because left to our own devices, we wouldn't go looking for him. But he searches for us. You notice the language. Let's get the, the parable of the lost sheep in here as well. Notice the language in verse 6. Uh, the shepherd, when he's talking to his neighbors, rejoice with me. I have found my sheep that was lost. And there are those who make the connection here through its own carelessness and wandering away. And, and we talked last week about how we all like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has turned to his own way. That's Isaiah 53. Notice here, verse 9. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. 
And that communicates the personal nature of the loss. That God feels this deeper than any one of us. He feels the loss, personal loss, over the coin that goes missing. But then, not only is our God a seeking God, the hound of heaven, one uh, writer has put it, he's also a God who celebrates, who rejoices. All of heaven erupts, in fact. The angels that are before God, the angels that are in his presence, are rejoicing with him. They're the neighbors and the friends, as it were, who rejoice with the one who has found the coin, the one who has found the sheep. It's fitting, by the way, that the angels are pictured here rejoicing, that that's the reality. After all, it's Peter who tells us that it's the angels who are looking at history and looking at God's redemptive purposes in history. They are things that they long to look into. Second Peter, excuse me, 1 Peter 1 and verse 12. So since they're already looking and they're already observing the purposes and will of God accomplished throughout time, space, and history, it's no wonder that in his presence there is celebration over the manifold wisdom of God. So what does it mean for us? This coin language, very interesting. Reminds me that that, uh, that drachma, that coin, would have borne an image on it, the image of the emperor. Now, of course, Jesus, he's had a conversation about coins in the past with the uh, numismatics, uh, uh, the, the experts uh, on numismatics in his day. Uh, shall we pay taxes? Give me a coin. Whose image is this? Caesar's. Remember this? We talked about this. It's been a few weeks, but... Well, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. Since it has his image on it, it must belong to him. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He's answered the question, yes? Because their question was, should we pay taxes? And he just said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, goes further. This is typical of Jesus. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And the implication is, just in the same way that this image, this coin bears an image, you also bear an image. You bear the image of God. Therefore, you must belong to God, render to God the things that are God's. And so, again, we render to God even ourselves because... We're his to begin with. He's the creator, we're the creatures. And what we owe our creator, simply by virtue of the fact that we are creatures, is honor and uh, giving thanks, thanksgiving. Paul says this in Romans 1. We owe it to our creator, at a bare minimum, honor and thanksgiving. Although they knew God, they did not honor him or give him thanks. You see, even though we bear the divine image, because it is broken, busted within us, we don't do the very bare minimum that we're supposed to. That image, broken, busted, but in Christ. This is how God reclaims that image. It is through Christ 
that the pieces are put back together, as it were, and we can find wholeness. And it's only in Christ that we'll find wholeness to that divine image. Listen to the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 3 and verse, well, let's get verse 9 as well. Verses 9 and 10 of Colossians 3. The Bible says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. That's the old self with the broken image, with its practices. See, broken image bearers produce broken acts toward other broken creatures. Sin, in other words. And have put on the new self. This is the new person, the new creation. We talked briefly about this in Bible class this morning. Notice, this new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And this whole conversation is in the context of being in Christ. That broken, busted image is being renewed. It is God who does the renewal. Cleans it up. Polishes it. Kind of like a shiny new penny, if you will. But this also, I, I believe, has bearing upon how we take the gospel into the world. You see, there are certain popular pastors and preachers today who will say, you know, we really don't need to tell people that they're sinners. Because they already know they're sinners. And really all we're going to do is just beat them up if we tell them that they're sinners. Because again, they already know that they're sinners. I would challenge that. and I would say, actually no, I, I don't, I don't think peop most people believe that they're sinners. I think most people believe that they are basically good people. That they are they're doing better than fill in the blank, whoever it is. In fact, they have Every night, they have a reminder that they're not as bad as other folks. It's called the evening news. You see, I'm, I'm not as bad as the guy who takes a gun onto a school campus and opens fire. I'm not as bad as the person who takes a gun into a church and opens fire. Both of those have happened in recent days, yes? I, I'm not as bad as the guy who packs a car full of explosives, and parks it in a place where there's a lot of people. I'm not as bad as the person who takes a vehicle and starts driving drunk. I'm not as bad as them. I'm a basically good person. Heresy of heresies. Self-deception. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are sinners before a holy God. That's the starting point for any conversation about who we are. We're sinners before a holy God who is absolutely perfect and righteous, whose eyes are too pure to even look upon sin. See, that's the problem, is, is we don't know who we are. And we also often don't know who God is. And when those get mixed up, we get all kinds of different ideas about who we are and then who God is. By the way, I'm not saying that you now have permission to go be obnoxious 
all right, or, or arrogant or rude in this, okay? It's true, we are sinners. But we are called to speak the truth in love. That we are to present the gospel. And, and here's the thing, the reality is, if we truly know who we are, that we are sinners, though righteous because of Christ, but, but still sinners, if we know who we are, that ought, to, that ought to produce humility. We ought to be the most humble people of all because what have, what have you received that you earned from God? Nothing. Nothing. One more thing. What does it mean for us today? Divine image bears, the image is broken, we're sinners in need of a savior. This joy in heaven part. <coughs> when we lived in Wichita, Kansas, we were there for a year. I was the preaching intern for the Northside Church of Christ. At the holiday time, Christmas, we were flying back home to California to be with family during the holidays. And the way it works out, because airlines have hubs, we had to have a layover in Dallas. That was the hub for the airline that we were traveling with. I don't remember which one it was. But while we were in Wichita, our flight was delayed. And that, if your flight is delayed and you don't have a long enough layover, you're going to miss that connecting flight. And that's what happened. We get to Dallas, and they fortunately had worked it out so that we could catch the next flight out of Dallas. So that was great. We had some lunch. We came back to the gate. They called us up. They said, hey, listen, um, we're going to bump you to first class. Ooh. you got to remember, we're 20-something, early 20-somethings at this point. We've never flown first class, right? So this is a big deal for us. And so when it's time to board, they call first class. They get to board first. And so uh, we... We travel, we, we try to travel light. We had uh, a backpack, a carry-on, uh, because it was wintertime. We also had coats with us. And so uh, we, we board the plane, we're sitting in first class, and then we get to watch all the hoi polloi, the little people walk past, right, while we're in first class. And you may be like me when I, do, when I travel, uh, especially uh, when I'm carrying stuff, I'll, I'll do a mental checklist. And so I'm doing that. Uh, backpack with my laptop. It got that. Okay, it's stored under the seat. Um, carry on. Yeah, it's stored in the overhead bin. Coat. You see, in the sweltering jungle, which was the Dallas airport, we'd both taken off our coats. Kim had hers. I'd left mine at our seats by the gate. Now, this coat is not just any coat. This is a coat that I've had I'd had for years already. I'd worn it all through high school. It was with me all through preaching school. It, it was a coat that, uh, that, that I'd had, and I'd actually got one for Kim that matched for Christmas one year. It was a black corduroy wool collar. I even knew the, the brand. It was called it was Burnside. And that coat, my jacket, it was a good coat. I just left it at the gate, and I make this realization as the stewardess closes the door and seals it call her over, I, the stewardess, I say, uh, 
I, I left my jacket at the gate. She said, I can't open the door. I'll call to the front gate there and see if they, she calls. I'm sorry, it's already gone. Wow. That's why you don't leave stuff in the airport for very long, right? And, and so, oh, I, I was crushed, inconsolable the whole flight. We get to California. I'm on the phone every day. We were there for three weeks. Every day I'm calling to the Dallas airport, lost and found. Have you found a jacket? It's a black corduroy, white wool collar, Burnside. It, there was stuff in the pockets. I knew it was in the pockets. It was a pocket New Testament. There was a jump drive in one of the pockets. Every day, no, we, uh, we don't have it here. We don't see it. We don't see it. We don't see it. Three weeks. Family tries to help. They purchased me a, uh, a, a fleece pullover that was black and white. It's not the same, right? And so we got to fly back to Wichita. We're flying the same airline, which means we have a layover in Dallas. Not a real long one. But I tell Kim, it's a last-ditch effort. We're going we're gonna to land. We're going to hustle over to Lost and Found. And it's just, if it's there, great. If it's not, I'll have to move on. We land, we hustle over to Lost and Found. We get to the Lost and Found. There's a woman standing behind the counter. <laughs> Black coat, white wool collar, Burnside, right? Sounds to me like you're missing a coat. Yeah, it was three weeks ago. It's like a, it's a shotgun I can see for like 20, 30 yards. This is a massive Lost and Found place, right? But this woman marches all the way to the back of the Lost and Found and she starts rifling through a coat rack, it looks like. And she stops at one point. And she yells down, you said black coat? Yeah. You said white wool collar? Now, I'm starting to think, right, there's a glimmer of hope. I'm like, really? Is it really my coat? But then there's also that voice in the back of your head where it's like, no, nah, it's not my coat. It's someone else's coat. It's one that's like my jacket. And so I say, yeah, you know. And she reaches in there, and she pulls my jacket off the rack. My jacket that I'd lost there and has been, I don't know what those guys were. I called down to the lost and found for three weeks, and it was always no. Were they just like laughing on the other end? Like, <laughs> this guy, he thinks he, it's not here, right? No, sorry, sir, it's not Guess what we did? We got on the phone. We called my parents. We called Kim's parents. Rejoice with me. The coat that I had lost is now found. We were ecstatic. I'm, how, do you, how do you describe that in terms? Can you? Can we even describe that feeling when we find something? And now... Take that feeling and amplify it times infinity. That's the joy that our God has when he finds lost coins, lost sheep. I'm talking about people, you understand. Jesus is talking about people. And then we get this. You ready? Here's the last bit. Ephesians 5 and verse 1. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, because you are loved by your Father, you beloved children, imitate Him. Imitate Him in desiring to see lost people found. 
Imitate Him in rejoicing when sinners come home. The grace of God has appeared in time and space. That's Jesus Christ in history. And He has taught us, revealed to us through these parables that He came to seek and save the lost. That He came that the Father might find His lost children. And so let us be people who unite with God in desiring to see lost sinners saved. And then let us also unite with heaven in rejoicing with our Heavenly Father when He finds His lost coins. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice in knowing that you found us. And we pray that we would be the means whereby in this world you would find other lost people. Indeed, Father, may we be faithful in taking the gospel to the whole world, knowing that there will be people who refuse it, but also confident that you will be faithful as we proclaim the message and the salvation of souls. And then, Father, ignite within us inexpressible joy over the good and glorious work that you are doing in this world. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.